Welcome to this podcast from Wilkesboro Baptist Church, where we are on a mission to lead our neighbors and the nations to follow Jesus. I'm going to ask you if you would to find your copy of Scripture and turn to 1 Timothy chapter 6. We're going to finish up our series today in 1 Timothy guarding the gospel. A number of weeks back, about a month or so ago, my family and I traveled to Louisiana. Gene is from Louisiana, so we spend time there uh, about once a year at least once a year, travel down and spend with her family. And on one of those particular evenings, uh, we went to see Jean's aunt and uncle who had recently moved to Louisiana. So we were going to eat on the outside patio there at their uh, new house. And uh, so we brought some pizza over. And we were getting ready to kind of make a seat around their outdoor table when they asked me to help Jean's uncle Alan move a couch. And so I walked around the table to help pick up the couch. And when I did, uh, Gene's uh, aunt and uncle's dog thought I meant harm to Uncle Alan. So that dog came around the table. And before I knew what was happening, he had decided to nip me on my ankle and on my knee and around my leg. And I didn't know what was taking place until I looked down and saw that I was being attacked by a dog for helping move a couch. Now, I don't fault the dog too much. The dog thought I was meaning harm to Gene's Uncle Alan. But that dog had fought the wrong fight. Listen, too often we fight about the wrong things and for the wrong things. In order for us to get a proper perspective on what it is we're supposed to be fighting about... Listen, we need to have a true vision of the king who demands our allegiance. We look in this text in 1 Timothy chapter 6, our memory verse is found there. Fight the good fight of the faith. And what tends to take place is you and I as followers of Jesus, we get mad about the wrong things. We fight about the wrong things. We get angry about the wrong things. You know, on the outside, I looked okay when that dog decided to, to bite me. I tried to be nice. Because, you know, I didn't, I didn't want to damage family relationships. And, you know, I didn't want to react poorly to a dog that didn't really know any better. But on the inside, I was not a happy person. Okay? Uh, and, and I was a little bit frustrated and disappointed at the experience that we had. How often does that translate in my life and in your life to acting in a way that's inconsistent with the truth of the gospel and the grace that we've received? Listen, what I want us to do today is take a look at this final paragraph from Paul to Timothy, reminding us what it is we need to see, who it is we need to see, and how it is that we need to behave. The reality is you and I need a proper vision of Jesus and His glory and His grace. Throughout 1 Timothy, Paul has instructed the church about sound doctrine. He's talked to the church about how to behave. He's talked to the church about structure. He's talked to the church about the importance of the gospel. And he's going to continue to give us some instruction here in this final paragraph. But he's going to do so from the perspective that we need to look to Jesus. Jesus is our motivator. Jesus is to be our focus. He's to be the one who gives us commands and directs our steps And so what I'd like us to do is look at the king and his gospel from 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 11 through 21. Read with me what the Apostle Paul writes. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness, 
Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God, who gives life to all things, and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession, to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time, he who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. To him, to this king, to this Lord, be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They're to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous, to be ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Old Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and the contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. For by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. Grace be with you. Or we could read, grace be with you all. That you in the Greek language is plural. It's to all of us that are present under the hearing of God's word. What I'd like you to do is notice first that the king is the one who commands our conduct. Paul begins with some instructions to Timothy, the man of God, here's how you're to behave. And he gives a list of imperatives, their commands, expectations, demands that we are to act in a certain way. And I want you to realize that it is not particularly or singularly Paul that is providing these commands. The center part of this paragraph focuses on Jesus who is king. On Jesus who is sovereign. On Jesus who, according to Matthew 28, Jesus' own testimony, all authority has been given in Him in heaven and on earth. The commands don't come from a person to a person. They come from God through a person to us. And the King is the one that gets to tell us how we are to behave. He says, four gives us four specific commands in the early part of this text. He says we're to flee from evil things. Particularly, he's telling Timothy to flee from the pursuit of money and cravings and things that will distract him from the gospel and distort his understanding of righteousness. Folks, there are sometimes in our lives we're just supposed to turn away from things that are ungodly. There are some temptations that surround us that instead of us trying to show how strong we are by resisting temptation, we should just get up and walk out of the situation and the circumstance. We're to flee certain things. And part of our spiritual maturity and spiritual growth is in learning to flee the things that are wrong. And that's a command. We're to flee evil things. He goes on to say we're to pursue after godly things or Christ-like things. We're to follow the things that make us look like Christ. And he gives us an indication of exactly what those things are. Notice the couplets or the pairs that Paul uses here. Instead of the thing, here's things you ought to flee, but now here are things you ought to pursue, follow after. He said we ought to pursue righteousness and godliness. We ought to pursue faith and love. We ought to pursue steadfastness and gentleness. That's who we ought to be. Particularly to Timothy, the man of God, but in, in retrospect of us reading this text, to all of us, this is what God expects of us. These pairs form a beautiful picture of who Jesus is. 
In other words, the things we're to follow after, the things we're to pursue, the things that are to, that are to drive our attention are things that are to make us more Christ-like. Does that make sense? And it begins with righteousness and godliness. Righteousness is outward behavior. How you and I look to one another and how you and I treat one another. Godliness is a, a vertical behavior whether or not we're right before God. See, some of us can look okay on the outside. Go back to me being bitten by a dog on a vacation. On the outside, I looked okay. Except for the blood that was pouring out of my leg. But that's another story. I didn't act in a way that was necessarily unrighteous, but I wasn't thinking godly thoughts on the inside. You get my point? What God expects of us is to pursue what looks right on the outside, but what is right on the inside. There's an expectation that we're right before God and right before others. Same thing in the next pair, faith and love. God wants us to pursue faith. That is faithfulness, a right relationship with God, holding on to the doctrine that we've been taught, holding on to the gospel, not letting go of it. He's going to explain that a little bit more in a moment, but not just making sure we're right with the Lord, making sure we're right with others by loving them. See, the Bible tells us that all men will know that we are followers of Jesus by our... By our what? Our love. The way we treat others is what shows that we've been changed on the inside by Christ who came to save us. So we're to pursue faith and love. We're also to pursue steadfastness and gentleness. Grateful for that song we just sang. Jesus indeed is steadfast. That means he perseveres, and he persevered. Do you think it was easy to walk into Jerusalem that final week of his life? Do you think it was easy for him to pray there in Gethsemane? Do you think it was easy to be betrayed and arrested, to face the enemy, to face Pilate, to face the religious leaders and the governing rulers? Do you think it was easy for him to go to the cross and stand in between God's holiness and our sinfulness by becoming sin itself? No, Jesus was steadfast. He persevered in the midst of challenges. And what Jesus commands that we do as followers of Jesus is that we pursue steadfastness. Folks, some of you are having a difficult time of it. Some of you, the path in front of you is far harder and more difficult than the path behind you. Some of you are going through times that are quite challenging. And what Paul says under the inspiration and direction of King Jesus is that we're to pursue being steadfast. Not letting go of the calling to which we have. Not just steadfastness, but gentleness. That means a meekness. Not, not treating other people in a way that is mean-spirited or divisive or angry. And particularly, this is a command to a pastor, to the man of God, to make sure he cares about his church. Sometimes it's going to be hard to, to keep moving forward. Sometimes it's going to be difficult to go day after day and week after week following Jesus, but we're to be steadfast. Some days it's really hard to want to be gentle toward other people. Some days people don't invite us to be gentle to themselves, do they? They act in ways that we want to be angry and frustrated and mean-spirited and yell and get our way and stomp our feet. And yet that's not how Jesus behaved. In our series that will begin next week, we're going to see how Jesus encountered people all throughout the New Testament. I'm going to tell you something. Jesus self-described himself as gentle and lowly. In other words, he was compassionate toward those around him. And that's what we're supposed to pursue. That's what our lives are to be like. Steadfast and gentle. 
That's the second command that King Jesus gives through Paul. Flee these things, follow after certain things. And then he goes on and he says, fight the good fight of the faith. There are some things, folks, that are worth fighting for. There are some things worth us getting angry about and not letting go of it. The word uh, fight here is agonizamai, which carries with it both a connotation in a military sphere or also in an athletic sphere. It basically means that we fight to the very end. We strive until there's no striving left. Those of you that are athletes, those of you that have played a sport or you've run track, you know what it's like to get to the very end of your physical strength and then to push on just a little bit further. As Americans, on this Memorial Day, as we think about the freedoms that have been won and bought by so many that have gone before, many of those who gave their lives in different areas, uh, different wars across our American history, they gave the very last measure of their strength and their effort in order to fight for the freedom that they believed that we needed. And that's the, the emphasis that Paul uses here, the language that he's using. Fight the good fight of the faith. Not, not fight for the things we'd like to see. Not fight in the political sphere. Not fight for the values that we, we think we deserve. He's not saying to avoid all that. But he's saying fight for what? The good fight of the faith. Listen, holding on to the gospel of Jesus Christ, declaring it, explaining it to others, we ought, with the last measure of who we are, fight for that, for the glory of God and His gospel. That's a command. It's what Paul expects. Fight the good fight of the faith. And then the fourth imperative he gives here in this text is hold on to eternal life. Hold on to the eternal life to which you testified about when you gave your confession. Essentially what he's saying is, when you trusted Jesus to be your Savior, and when you were baptized by immersion, declaring publicly your conversion experience, Paul says that we're to hold on to that eternal life that we've received. We're to not let go of it. We're to make sure that it is not something that we ignore and we set aside. We're to hold on to it tightly. Thank goodness... How tightly we hold on to it does not determine whether or not we have it. Amen? The, the certainty of our eternal life rests in the fact that Jesus holds on to us. But the emphasis that Paul shares is he wants that to be front and center of the way that we behave and the way that we act. In other words, if you and I are always thinking about holding on to the eternal life that we have, the chances of our behavior being more godly and more right are, are much more likely. Let me illustrate what that holding on should be like. It should be like not letting go regardless of what happens around us. There was once a man who shot a bird out of the sky. In fact, he shot an eagle out of the sky. Terrible guy. Shouldn't shoot eagles out of the sky, but this is the story. Shot an eagle out of the sky, and when he came to see the eagle that he had shot out of the sky, he discovered the skull of a weasel attached to the throat of the eagle. Evidently, sometime in, in the past, the eagle had decided he was going to find a meal, and he saw this weasel, and he swooped down and attacked this weasel. And the weasel turned and grabbed a hold of the neck or the throat of the eagle and would not let go. Through death, through rot, through losing every other part of its skeleton, the jaws of that weasel... Held on to the throat of the eagle. Folks, that's the way that Paul says you and I ought to hold on to eternal life. Not let go of it. 
Not, not, not ignore it, not let it go by the wayside. Hold on to it with all of our might and our strength. Why? Not just because the king commands us to, but because we see a vision of who the king is. The king reveals himself. And Paul says, essentially, the reason that he commands us and the reason we ought to behave this way is because of who it is that we serve, who it is that has saved us. Notice what he says. I charge you, that's a military term, I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus. So the first reason we're to abide by these commands is because God is the one who's witness to it. Folks, we're in the presence of God and Jesus Christ. Do you realize that there's not a thing you can do, think, or say that God is not witness to? There's not a desire that you have. There's not a doubt that you have. There's not a concern or a fear that you have that God is not witness to. And because we're in the presence of God, we're to abide by these things. We're to follow these commands. And Jesus is not just our witness. He's our example. He's our model. Notice what Paul said who gives life to all things, and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession. Listen, Jesus faced things that are harder than any of us could ever imagine. And standing before Governor Pilate on that day, when Pilate literally held the life of Jesus in his own own hands, Jesus did not deter from the path God had called him to. He made the good confession of faith, glorifying God in his obedience to go to the cross. He did that for you and for me. So Paul charges us to keep this commandment unstained and free from the reproach. He charges us to abide by the commands of our king until the going gets tough. Uh, Until we get tired. Until the pastor gives us permission to, to stop. No. He says we're to do this until Jesus comes back. The appearing of the Lord Jesus. I'll tell you something, that gives me hope. Jesus is coming back. There is coming a day when all of the wickedness and depravity and unrighteousness in this world will be set right by the King who sits on the throne. There is coming a day when Jesus will appear in all of His glory and in all of His grandeur. He is coming back. He is returning. And you and I are to... Keep these commands until he comes back. And who is, it, who is it that is coming back? He is the king who is full of glory and greatness. Notice this. Which, verse 15, he will display at the proper time, meaning he'll come back when he's ready. When, when it is the appropriate time, Jesus will return. Not in our timeline, but he'll come back when it's right. He who is, who is this one who's coming back? The blessed and the only sovereign. And the word is potentate. It means someone who is absolutely in charge and in control. Historically, the emperor during this day was Nero. As Paul wrote to Timothy about how the church is to behave, and he's talking about the king, immortal, invisible, from chapter 1. He's talking about the king who is sovereign, the potentate. In, In Paul's day, Nero would have been that potentate, that sovereign, that emperor, that one who had absolute charge of the Roman Empire. And he was a wicked, depraved individual. Terrible man. Uh, he, he, he used Christians as, as torches, covered them in oil and used them as torches to light the pathways and the roadways of Rome at night. He is likely the emperor that presided over Paul's own martyrdom. But he's not really the one in charge. Do you get that? Do you get that 
our presidents are not really the ones who are in charge? Do you get that whoever's leading in Europe is not really the one in charge? Whatever might happen in the next days, weeks, months, or years in, in our own land, our own country, or in the places across the world are not really the ones in charge. Jesus is the one who is sovereign. Jesus is the one who rules. He's the one who sees all things that are taking place. And not a thing is, happens that He is not allowing to happen. And ultimately, he will work in and through all of the events of the world to show that he is sovereign and to show that he is in control. He's sovereign over the nations. He's sovereign over his church. He's sovereign in the spread and the sharing of his gospel. Folks, he's sovereign in your saving experience, your salvation experience. Just this week, uh, a family that I've been praying for for a number of years in the life of our church been on my prayer journal that I've mentioned to you before, praying that God would work in their lives. God allowed a set of circumstances in this man's life to bring him and I into a set of conversations. And we've met for two weeks in a row, talked about what's going on in his life, and talked about his need for the gospel. This past Friday, we met, we talked, he put his faith and trust in Jesus as Lord and Savior, and in the coming weeks, we'll be baptized here at Wilkesboro Baptist Church. I didn't set those circumstances up. I didn't orchestrate the events that brought him and I into a conversation. And by the way, the events that brought him there aren't the greatest events in the world. They're not the things we would think and say, man, that's a pretty, pretty amazing, wonderful story about how God brought him to salvation. Some of those things are painful and difficult and challenging. But do you know what? God is sovereign in your saving experience. He's the one that orchestrated the events ultimately of Jesus coming and dying on the cross so you and I could be saved. But if you look back at the testimony that brought you to a relationship with Christ, folks, God was behind all of those events, circumstances, and situations that brought you to a place where you confess your sin and follow Jesus as Lord and Savior. He is the sovereign. He is the only one that ultimately is in charge of the events. And he's the one that we're to look to and see in his glory and his greatness. Paul said he's not only the sovereign, the blessed and only sovereign, the only one who is right and glorious. He's the king of kings. He has all authority. He's the Lord of lords. There is no one that will be able to push back against King Jesus. We may have political discord in our land Congress and a president or a Supreme Court fights and fusses. We might have geopolitical conflicts in our world between nations and other nations. We may have wars, but I'm going to tell you something. When King Jesus comes to set down his foot on planet earth, the ones who push back against him, the ones who dare to not bow their knee to King Jesus will face the judgment of God. He's in control. Listen, just a testimony from my scripture reading. I read through the Bible, through the Robert Murray McShane reading plan. I've done that for 10 or 12 years, read the Old Testament once, and the New Testament and Psalms twice every single year. And I've done that for about 15 years. And the beauty of that past, that set of Scripture reading reminds me over and over again that God is a God who judges. He judges the people of Israel. He judges the Canaanites. He judges the Egyptians, the Babylonians, the Assyrians. He judges throughout the entirety of the Old Testament. You find him in the New Testament. God is judging. And and at first glance, we read that and we think, man, do I really want to serve a God who judges this much? If we're really honest with ourselves, we don't want to serve a God who doesn't judge. Because the God who judges is the only one who can claim absolute righteousness and rightness. 
And folks, the thing that gives us hope is if God has spent the last 1,500 years of biblical history testifying to His righteousness, holiness, and judgment, it is absolute assurance that one day as we look around and see all the depravity, the wickedness, the unrighteousness, the terrible things that are happening in our world that rightly break our hearts, that rightly disturb our minds, that rightly bring us to a place of, I don't want to be here and see this anymore. When we see all that we can know that Jesus is the sovereign. Jesus is the King of kings. Jesus is the Lord of lords. And those vile things that happen in elementary schools and those vile things that happen in abortion clinics and those vile things that happen in war, they're not ultimate, folks. Jesus will come back and He will bring righteousness and judgment when He returns. And those of us that are holding on to the eternal life that He has given us through His Son, Jesus, can be assured that He reigns and that He wins. Paul goes on to say He's not just the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He's immortal. He's immortal. He's deathless. He can't die. And yet the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ is that the God who could not die took on human flesh so that he would die in order that you and I might live. In the person of Jesus, he died on a cross to give you and I the opportunity of salvation. He's not only immortal, he's not only deathless. By the way, he'll never die again. He'll never lose again. There will never be an appearance of God's failure again like there might have been on the cross, though it wasn't really failure. It was ultimate success and victory and glory as defined and declared by exclamation point at the resurrection. He is immortal, but he dwells in a glorious, unapproachable light. Read Revelation chapter 1. Read Isaiah chapter 6. Folks, when we see Jesus and all of his matchless glory and splendor, we're going to bow on our face before Him as if He is the holy, righteous King of kings and Lord of lords. This is who He is. He's invincible, invisible. We can't see Him with our eyes. Folks, there's going to come a day when we stand before holy God and God is spirit and no eye has seen Him. Even what we might see in our glorified state one day in the future will not even... I mean, we will, we will be blown away whatever vision of God we might get. As Moses saw God there on the mountain, the backside portion of God's glory, and he, was, he had to veil his face because of the glory that shone off. That's the Jesus that we're going to step into his presence one day in eternity. And folks, that is the motivating picture of why we're to follow his commands. Why do we need to gather and worship? Why do we need to gather and hear the word preached? Why do we need to be in Sunday school classes and discipleship groups? Because God is working to make us Christ-like. And the more we see Jesus and His glory and His grandeur, the more we focus on His majesty and His wonder, the more God works in our hearts to bring us into a right fellowship with Jesus who is King of kings and Lord of lords. We need to see the King as He reveals Himself to us. And finally, in this last paragraph, what Paul does is he, he encourages us to not be distracted. The king tells us how we're to avoid distractions because here's the reality. Yes, we're to pursue these godly things and be righteous in, in our obedience and our commands, allegiance to God's commands. Yes, we're to see Jesus and His glory and His greatness. But our tendency is to let all of the things around us distract us. And specifically, he focuses on two things that distract us. The first is he focuses on those who have wealth. It is easy for those of us who are wealthy to be distracted by our wealth and not focus on the glory of Christ. Notice this, verse 17. 
As for the rich in the present age, charge them not to be haughty. Listen, just because you got a certain amount of money in your bank account doesn't make you better than somebody else. And that's what Paul says to those who are wealthy. Don't be haughty. Don't think you're special because you have money. That's the point. Nor set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches. Folks, markets go up and markets go down. Bank accounts go up and bank accounts go down. Emergencies happen and you have to spend money that you've saved. Jobs come and jobs go. Riches are uncertain. And like we learned last week, regardless of how much you have, you can't take it with you into the next life. Riches are uncertain, but God is not. God's not uncertain. We should put our hope on God who is absolutely certain. Notice what it is. God is the one who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. It's not wrong to enjoy what God's blessed you with. It's not wrong at all. It's just wrong to trust in what God has blessed you with as God rather than trusting in God. And God said there's a specific way that those who are wealthy can affirm that they trust in God and not trust in their wealth. Notice this, verse 18. They're to do good. Our focus is to do good, to be rich in good works and to be generous and ready to share. That's who we're supposed to be. By the way, by every measurable standard we could use, we are wealthy. Whether we're looking at a historical standard of wealth from ages past to today, or whether we're looking at a merely geographical uh, kind of category of wealth in terms of the United States versus other parts of the world, we are the wealthy. God's blessed us. So what are we to do with wealth? We're to enjoy it, and we're to share it. We're to give it away. One of the best ways... You can say to the Lord that you trust Him and not what's in your bank account is to bless someone else with it. Give it to an organization. Give it to a church. Give it to a ministry. Give it to a person in need. Share and be generous. And some of you have. I'm grateful to be a part of a church where generosity is evident in Wilkesboro Baptist Church. Thank you for that. Why should we share? Because our hope's not in this. It can be a distraction. Our hope is in Christ and Christ alone. Notice what He says. When we share and are generous, we're storing up treasure for ourselves as a good foundation of the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. One of the best ways to hold on to eternal life is to realize that the wealth we're trying to hold on to in this life isn't going to last, and so we're going to send it on to heaven by giving it away here. What really lasts is what we store up in heaven. Wealth can be a distraction. False doctrine can be a distraction. Paul says to avoid that, make sure we understand what the gospel teaches. Notice what he says in verse 20. Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Don't get distracted by irreverent babble and contradictions and, and, and things that are falsely called knowledge. In other words, hold on to the gospel. And it's not a gospel Timothy developed. And it's not a gospel that Paul developed. Why is it a deposit? A deposit is something that has been entrusted to one who is a steward of it. One of the best ways that we can avoid being distracted by all the things around us is to focus on what really and truly matters. One of the things that breaks my heart for churches, for denominations, for organizations is when those churches, denominations, or organizations get distracted by false teaching, 
get distracted by bad doctrine, get distracted by things that aren't gospel-oriented, get distracted by selfish interests rather than God's glory and greatness. And one of the reasons Paul wrote to Timothy and said, here's the way the church should be structured, here's what the church should believe, and here's what the church should proclaim, is because he wanted the church to ever be a foundation where those who would gather in this community in Ephesus would be a church that proclaimed the gospel and that sinners could come to salvation. And if we're distracted by all this other stuff, then we won't be that church. That's why we spent so much time in 1 Timothy over the last several months. Because folks, our obligation is not just to be a church that is enjoyable for us today and and not fighting today and proclaiming the gospel today. Our obligation is to be a church that will do that tomorrow and for the next generation, for the next generation, for the next generation. And how can we do that? By not being distracted and making sure we focus on what is the gospel that God has given to us. Paul closes with this benediction. He says, Grace be with you all. The word there for you is in plural, meaning that Paul anticipated that all the readers would need God's grace. Why is that? Because let's just be honest with ourselves. If you take your life as you're sitting in this worship service today, and if you take your life and you line it up against the commands that God has given us earlier in the text, things we're supposed to flee, things we're supposed to follow, life that we're supposed to hold on to, the fight that we're supposed to fight, if we look at our lives and compare it to the Jesus that we're supposed to focus on and really begin to think, what do I focus on? Who does have my attention? If we look at the things that distract us, all too often we're distracted by our sin and our selfishness, by our money, by things that distract and cause contradictions. And guess what? If we look at our lives in light of what God expects, we're going to discover that we fall staggeringly short of God's expectations. Which is why Paul closed with, may grace be with you. Because we need the unmerited favor and grace of God. Because the reality is, you and I don't belong by our own lineage in God's family. I began with a story about a dog. Let me close with a story about a dog. Our family has had two dogs since my wife and I got married. Both of those dogs were rescues. Both of those dogs my wife picked out. Those dogs were not born in our family. Those dogs did not belong in our family. Those dogs were chosen by my wife And guess what? They became a part of our family. I just want to say this. That's a picture of grace. That's exactly what God did with us. You don't deserve to be in God's family. You didn't act good enough. You weren't born in the right standing. You you were not born into righteousness. The Bible says we were born into unrighteousness. We don't belong in God's family. But God in His wonder and in His matchless grace has invited us into his family and given us the privilege to know him. Christian, hear this. You don't deserve to be here, nor do I. We don't line up and match up with God's standards, so we need God's grace. Let God's grace be the motivating factor for you following Jesus. When you go back and read that text, who we're supposed to be and how we're supposed to behave, let God's grace motivate you to look at Jesus, see His glory, and you follow Christ to the extent that God expects you to.
Unbeliever, if you're here today and you haven't yet trusted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, let me beg of you, let today be the day you accept His grace. Let today be the day that you follow Jesus. I want to tell you something. God offers us, graciously offers us salvation. But you don't have to accept it. God's a gentleman that invites us into fellowship and family with Himself. But you don't have to accept it. See, over the course of a few years, we've adopted some dogs into our family. There was this one time my wife and I were living in an apartment before we owned a house. There was a stray cat. And for those of you that have been here as long as I have at Wilkesboro Baptist Church, you know that I do not have a very strong affinity for cats. Take it for what it is. Maybe you feel that way. Maybe you feel differently. Nevertheless, it was a stray cat that needed a place, needed food. And our family, my wife and I, offered that cat a place to live. You know what that cat did? Ran off. I was thinking, thank heavens. Listen, listen to me. God offers us grace. You don't have to accept it. But if you don't accept it, you won't have a family to belong to. You won't have a Savior who cleanses you of your sins. You won't have a people that can come alongside you and encourage you in the midst of your difficulties and challenges. If you're here today and you have not yet received the grace of Jesus Christ and the salvation He's offered, He offers, I beg you, don't walk out of here today without receiving Jesus. The invitation will be available. I'll be down here to be willing to talk to you if you want to talk after the worship service. I'd love to talk to you about putting your faith and trust in Jesus. Stand with me, if you will, as we close our worship service. Father, thank you for your abundant grace. Lord, we don't deserve it. None of us in this room were born into the... We're not born into righteousness. We're not born into goodness. We don't belong. And yet, God, in your graciousness and your kindness, you offer us salvation and eternal life through Jesus and Jesus alone. Lord God, as Christians, may we take a long look into that glorious grace of Jesus Christ. And may the grace of Christ motivate us to follow Jesus in our behavior. To follow Jesus in His commands. To follow Jesus in not being distracted. To follow Jesus in worship and glory, glorifying the only one who is sovereign. And Father, for those in the room that have not yet received the grace of Christ, and I know there are some, I pray that today would be the day that they would recognize that this offer of grace given by Jesus is an opportunity for them to belong in a family of faith. It's an opportunity for their sins to be cleansed. It's an opportunity for them to have eternal life and to hold on to that life that will last forever. I pray that today would be the day of their salvation. Today would be the day they would receive the grace of Christ and follow you. pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Remember to like and subscribe wherever podcasts are found.